Tomorrow Into Today, a podcast dedicated to sharing the knowledge and language of artificial intelligence in the Department of Defense. Join us as we discuss the passion projects for some of today's brightest minds and how artificial intelligence is being cultivated, procured, and delivered throughout the U.S. government. Be prepared to learn how artificial intelligence has become a part of everyday life and is working to support and further government missions. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow into Today. I'm Ariel Moore, the producer of this podcast. Again, today we have Bonnie Evangelista from the CDAO, helping us gather relevant knowledge and expertise from our guest today, John Brennan, former special assistant to the Deputy Director of National Intelligence. So thank you for joining us today. Bonnie, the floor is yours. All right. Welcome, John. Thanks for joining me today. Oh, you're very welcome, Bonnie. I, I'm really pleased with this program you'll put together and honored to be part of it. Oh, well, that's very nice of you. So I, I had a wonderful conversation a bit ago with Rob Johnston. He's the former lessons learned officer at the CIA. And he he said, you have a lot of experience bringing AI and innovation into the CIA from the outside world. So I wanted to talk to you about that and gain some insight from your experience doing that, because I'm sure you're running through a lot of the same themes or challenges that the rest of us are. So why don't we start with a little bit about you? What was your role in participating in some of these efforts in the CIA or how did you even get there? Sure. It was a circuitous path. I've been working for about 25 years now across tactical, operational, and strategic. Roughly 10 years in government between my time in the Army and CIA, three years of purely commercial work, and then a couple dozen years or a dozen years of supporting government agencies, mostly in national security and defense. From the largest you know, organizations like the Army to being at a startup where it's you and the CEO sitting at a dining room table. And kind of mid-career after doing a lot of uh, consulting to the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency and analytics work for a number of intelligence agencies, I got the opportunity to go work at CIA for Rob for about a year doing the kinds of lessons learned studies he previously described. And then I took a rotation to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence to the Deputy Director of National Intelligence for Intelligence Integration, which was a merger of their collection and analysis leaders to try to create national intelligence managers and unifying intelligence strategies. And one of the, a couple of the assignments I got tagged with while there was looking at the big data analytic programs across the entire intelligence community as part of a major issue study to determine what the path forward for investment should be. Then I led a tiger team focused on anticipatory intelligence. And then finally, I led a study of the lessons learned on why the community you know, did or didn't, what they did or didn't see about the start of the Arab Spring. And it's those experiences that led me to uh, propose and stand up a new uh, program on societal instability uh, thereafter. So that's that's how I met Rob. Along the mm -hmm. way, I've also you know picked up and been very committed to lifelong learning. So after my bachelor's degree, I uh, pursued master's degrees and then finally a, a PhD in public administration. So I I mm -hmm. tried to focus on how do you hack the bureaucracy. Ooh, hack the bureaucracy! You piqued my interest. So wh where in that journey? or in that breadth of experience, did you start to see the AI conversation really take over the conversation, right? Like you started to realize that th this was a thing that we needed more intention or focus around in your world. 
I've really seen it off and on throughout the last 20 years. You know, if you think back to the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, Dr. Steve Cambone, he had a transformation program, and then there was a horizontal integration program, and there were multi-int integration programs, and big data analytics programs, and they were all just different words for trying to enable us to cope with the volume, variety, you know, velocity of information that we were starting to deal with as societies digitized. But before I jump into artificial intelligence, I just want to go back to what I think of as intelligence and then what I think of as artificial intelligence, just conceptually. Yeah, and let's do it. For me, it's Daniel Kahneman's work, Thinking Fast and Slow. So he breaks our ability to think down into two systems. System one is that kind of automatic, quick, little to no effort, you know, no sense of voluntary control reaction to what we see in our immediate surroundings, you know, what our senses are capable of, et cetera. And then system two is where we're really, as he says, allocating attention to effortful mental activities, you know, complex computation, choice, concentration, et cetera. And those systems are two kind of electrochemical machines in our brains that are storing experiences and information, you know, associating things together uh, to help us develop a model for what normal is. And that main function of that system one is to update and maintain the model of our personal world and what's normal in it. As new, novel, abnormal information uh, comes in, it sometimes leads to surprise. And then surprise triggers a system one and system two reaction. The system one reaction is what we call the fight or flight reaction where our sympathetic nervous system starts you know, to change our heart rate, change our blood pressure, breathing rate, pupils dilate, and the priority of energy within our bodies gets dedicated to you know, the fight or flight response. But as of 2022, an interesting study at MIT, there's another process that's happening where system one and system two are using a neurotransmitter called noradrenaline to code the associations of that new information into what we think normal is. So if you think back across your life at some point, you probably were in a car crash. It was very disorienting when the bumpers you know, struck one another between two cars. But as you get to your second or third or fourth car crash, you don't feel the same sort of cognitive helplessness that you do when that surprise happens. And so if that's what intelligence is, then I think artificial intelligence is the deliberate effort by humans to build what I think of as system three. And system three is us thinking through in advance what we think normal will be, what the base rate of cases and alternatives will be in that normal environment, and then trying to describe what we think the edge cases are gonna be, and then crafting algorithms that best represent what the system one response should be in that kind of situation. And of course, algorithms are procedures for solving math problems. You know, there's finite steps, you do it over and over again. And what we really have to build in AI are system three implementations where you've got data, software, models, and interfaces that are constrained to specific tasks and contexts. Um, you know, maybe in the fullness of time, we'll have a, enough reliable system three implementations that we can have artificial general intelligence or some nascent version of that. But, um, you know, it's that sort of process that I think we now have to go through over and over again to build these kind of system three bespoke purposeful uh, collections of algorithms. Yeah, that's a 
uh, one of the best summaries, I would say, to logically break down the pieces and components to get to AI, uh, I, I, we've talked to a number of guests who talk about there's foundational principles that you have to have. You mentioned a couple of data being a critical one. And mm -hmm. in order to enable or enact an AI capability, you have to have um, these, as you were describing the, the system one, system two, right? I was thinking of stepping stones. So right. yeah, that, that's an interesting way to think about it. So with that, I would say, how did you approach at the CIA in doing, whether it was bringing AI capability to the CIA, how did you approach that method, that framework, I would say, in your environment? So from the the work in the big data analytics study, it was clear that we had significant capabilities across the agencies and departments. They had not been just sitting on their hands, you know, waiting for somebody to solve the problem of large data. They all had programs underway, either in research or operations. And there was, you know, very good but traditional thinking about how you solve surprise problems, and it's with indications and warning. You know, you have a checklist of all the things you see in a template of behaviors. And when you see your adversary do those things, eventually you have enough, you know, items checked and you're starting to provide warning. Uh, and yet, when you look across the history of the intelligence community, you know, there have always been surprises and there probably will continue to be surprises. So we were trying to reimagine, you know, how could you uh, do a better job of anticipating or imagining the unknowns, the unknown unknowns, or however you want to describe the things that weren't on your checklist. And uh, ultimately, we, we described it as there's a set of 4C tasks, and then forecast tasks, and then alert and warn. So you're still going to warn. That's what everybody wants. Indications or alerts, you know, are components. But um, what was missing in some cases was that set of earlier alerts against a set of anticipatable problems that would give the managers and leaders time to reorient. And so one of the anecdotes I found, if you go back to the Arab Spring, uh, you'll remember the, the fruit vendor um, self-immolated, and then you have rioting in Tunisia, and before you know it, there's rioting in Egypt and multiple countries in the Middle East, and then governments start to fall. Now, there's no direct line between the fruit vendor self-immolation and, you know, the fall of, of the Egyptian government. But how do you go back and, you know, do anything different there? One of the things I found is that if you just looked at Google search trends in the days leading up to the fruit vendor self-immolation, there, there was a certain day where you had sort of a two-sigma spike in people searching for or about Tunisia. Well, what was happening in Tunisia? You know, are they holding the World Cup? Are people interested in the, you know, who's winning the matches? And uh, when you look at it, it was basically uh, problems in Parliament. You know, which members were going to be able to stay or go, et cetera. And so that doesn't tell you that there's about to be an Arab Spring. But if you have that information, we have this two sigma event of uh, societal, you know, uh, embers starting to burn in the country. Now you as the managers of analysts can make a decision. Okay, do I want to continue to have 1 20th of an analyst covering Tunisia because I have one analyst covering many countries in Africa? Or at what point do I start to add more resources, ask more questions to pay attention to this problem? How do I you know, observe and orient? Um, and so if you have 
so the the epiphany for me was well, we don't have anything like this going on we're not just constantly checking how many times people mention a country name every hour of every day all the time so that we know when there's these little two sigma events um, meanwhile over in DARPA and in IARPA, there were programs that were also working on this problem. So DARPA had the IQs program and IARPA had the uh, OSI program, which were leveraging social science models, uh, news reporting, and you know new methods of software interacting with uh, all these words that other people have taken the time to type up so that you can start to uh, see and detect um, basically changes in the environment. Examples of changes are things like how many, how many times are the candidates being updated in a Wikipedia post in some election? Um, you know, what, what are people upset about in Brazil? You know, there's, there's rioting in Brazil again. Well, it turns out it was a five cent increase in the bus fare, you know, on the system. That was enough to get people upset. Um, and much like the Department of Defense, you have these great S&T, rdt and &E activities going on in the various agencies and departments, but how do you get them to the computer of the everyday analyst so that they can use it and not have it be, you know, a science project over on the other side of the, of the building? Right. I was just about to ask, how did you even know about the DARPA and IARPA pro er, efforts going on? Because that is also a challenge is how do, how do people in... Uh, the I was going to say the ecosystem, like, uh, but how does anyone else other than the person working the, the R&D project know about that these are going on? So I'm curious how you got connected to that. Um, I don't remember the specific one now, but obviously uh, IARPA was part of ODNI at the time. And then once you get into that community of people working on things, you know, you find them through Google searches or the internal versions of Wikipedia, um, you immediately start just trying to find you know, the other folks in that, in that arena. And so you're back to personal networking uh, to go build rapport with them, you know, understand what they're working on and, and how you can complement one another, understand their schedules, understand their resource challenges, and just uh, see where you can achieve alignment. Um, so that was and the you next were able, task. Yeah, and you were able to leverage what they were doing? Um, we were, uh, but again, it was, you know, sitting over here in this unclassified network and um, was a quasi production system. You know, it had a defense contractor that was maintaining it now. The data was continuing to come in. Uh, the indicators were available, but it was not integrated into any business process that the analytic community would use. You know, you had a, a set of notional beta participants over in some of the agencies and departments, but it was not something that the leadership would wake up every day and go look at to decide, should I pay attention to a country? Um, the IARPA program was much more nascent. You still had performers at universities coming up with methods. They were one-time demonstrations. Uh, it wasn't anything that could be repeatable yet or scalable, but it was showing that there were methods that would work you know, in pieces and at points in time. So the question that I started asking was, how do we make this effectively a program of record? What's the homeroom for it need to be? Can you estimate how much data you have to process and how much funding it might, that might be required? And then armed with information like that, I had the opportunity to present it to uh, the leadership 
in ODNI, and then using their very long-standing relationships with their colleagues in the science and technology uh, community, um, specifically within the CIA. You know, we're, they were able to contemplate how do you come up with funding and a homeroom and and people to go start working on this more as uh, something that will be implemented rather than it continuing to be science projects. Wow, I didn't anticipate you to go in this direction. So how did, did is that what happened? You created a program of record based on the work they were doing. Um, or the, helped, government, the government yeah. allocated funds. Uh, people were assigned to a unit. Um, data scientists were issued. Uh, and then we ran into the next round of traditional obstacles that you normally face, you know, which is, oh, your data scientist is not allowed to have access to data. Huh. Why not? Okay. Well, because you're new and you have to have a justification for access to data. Okay, well, what do I have to do to do that? And oh, by the way, we want to volunteer to use all the new intelligence community information technology environment eyesight programs that y'all are rolling out, like things like the cloud and um, key management, et cetera. We want to be a pathfinder for that. We're happy to use those things. Um, sorry, they're not exactly ready yet, or uh, you can't use them yet until you do these other things. And so you have a data scientist who's sitting there with no access to data, and nothing, no environment to work on. And so that's where, you, again, you start to get creative and find the open source data that the IARPA program has been using and unclassified work environments where they can go get started so that you don't lose this precious new hire you have with all their skills. Oh, wow. So did, did you end up getting, I'm going to use the term validated requirement. That's, that's what, what we call it in the department. So did, did you end up getting to that point where you had a validated requirement you had it sounds like you you had money and resources coming together to do a thing and then then what um along that journey i was also tasked with uh contributing to the national intelligence strategy which is much like the department of defense's defense strategy or cyber strategy or ai strategy you know a large coordinated effort of people writing sentences and paragraphs and fighting over them and putting them together into a document that leaders will put their signature on and post to the website as the new strategy. And based on what I got to learn through the Tiger team and the other studies, by virtue of being in the leadership organization responsible for the future of collection and analysis, I was able to draft the anticipatory intelligence strategic goal within the national intelligence strategy and the mm -hmm. kinds of objectives that would have to be achieved while simultaneously working on one of the many programs that needed to you know, continue to be funded or expanded or tweak its operations to go in this in this new direction. Because again, you had the J2, you had J2 warning, you had lots of activities in DIA and NGA and NSA that were already working on indications and warning problems. And so we needed to expand societal instability as being part of the thinking and then get more work going on foreseeing and forecasting. And were, were you successful? Did any of this work help get you to the place where you wanted to be, where some of the, where, where you knew the art of the possible was in the, I would say the, those research projects, did you end up getting it into the hands of analysts or otherwise? I think so. But for me, the journey ended after we got the program going and leadership was installed and 
and I got justification for them to have access to data. You'll remember back during this time frame that we were uh, sequestering and we were getting furloughed. And during one of those moments, I got time to reflect upon whether or not I was saving enough money for my kid's college and how was I going to pay for my dissertation because the agency wasn't going to pay for it. And that's where I moved on to uh, Amazon Web Services to work on getting the cloud computing resources that we didn't have access to yet. Oh, wow. So I, I want to go back to your hack the bureaucracy uh, comment. So what are, what are your best tips for hacking the bureaucracy based on your experience? So, you know, again, it's not like people aren't trying to change. You know, we could list 17 different names of things that we're trying to do, you know, after big data analytics, it was intelligence integration and there's agile and DevOps and DevSecOps. And so really come down to the challenges are always the same in these large human institutions. Alvin Toffler said, change is the process by which the future invades our lives. But unfortunately, it arrives at different times and different places. And the places that you need to look for real long-term change are top to bottom, strategy and priorities, policies, performance incentives, workforce skills, mission process, enabling process, systems and resources. And so you may arrive in one of these change programs and see, okay, we've got the strategy and the priorities and we've got some resources over here, but the rest of it is totally disengaged and they have many higher priorities. And then, you know, from there, you really just have to work through, I think the three common things that effective change agents get accomplished. And that is organization, courage, and perseverance. So if you're gonna try to make change across that many different kind of parts of a bureaucracy from people's personal incentives to the training and skills they have to the kind of systems they turn on when they do work, there's a lot of different organizations you have to affect a change in, and you have to get them to redirect their priorities, get them to redirect their resources, and get them to deliver on, as you said, the requirements or the end state that you're trying to achieve. It also takes courage. You have to confront you know, a number of people along the way who are going to either disagree with what you want to do, disagree with how you want to do it, or disagree that they have any kind of role in supporting you. This takes me back to a commercial consulting engagement I first had where I was trying to help traditional publishers go from books and CDs and microfiche to the internet. And the, the, uh, the initial project was to work with the technology team to build this new product where you can LexisNexis and, and groups like that can sell things on the internet. And we built the entire system and the users loved it but it got shut down by the sales and marketing team because they didn't know how to sell it and because nobody ever engaged them in the beginning. So, you know, you have to have that courage to get started and then the perseverance to work through all the obstacles that you're going to face. And I don't think there's any easy button for getting these kinds of changes to happen. Going from a committee-based process for image task management to a sources marketplace was a multi-year retraining effort, new process effort, new system effort. And I think the same is going to be true for transitioning to DevSecOps and cloud and cyber and zero trust. And the same is going to be true for all the software modernization that the department has now announced, you know, it's going to focus on for enabling capabilities like AI. Yeah. 
What what would you say to people who are thinking about what you just said? Because I will say no one's ever going to have the perfect plan to address every single one of those things, right? And you have to kind of, I, I liked your comment about having courage. So you have to have courage to do something though. And I, I guess, how would you suggest people orient where they put intention behind their action? Does that make sense? It does. Again, whether you're in the government or in the private sector, you can't go wrong by going down to the user level and finding a problem that they need solved. So, you know, <laughs> if I tried to, to offer an example, you know, let's just imagine Lieutenant Brennan in Korea, it's 1996, 97, and I'm taking over an anti-tank platoon. And when you take over any sort of organization, the first thing you do is inventory the equipment. And the process for inventorying equipment is you call all the soldiers out of the barracks and you lay out all the equipment on the ground in front of the Humvees. And then the chain of command walks down the line and looks at all the pieces and parts to confirm that they're there. And somewhere after you pass the first Humvee, the sergeants pause and start talking to the lieutenant about some particularly interesting piece of equipment or method for maintaining it on truck two. And meanwhile, what's happening is truck four has corporals and specialists who are walking back and forth slowly over to truck one, getting equipment that truck four is missing so they can have a complete layout for truck four. So the way you would solve that problem in a new reimagined way is, and this is where people will you know, debate technologies, you should put RFID you know, chips on every piece of equipment so you know if it's there or not. Or you should put cellular radios on them or a Wi-Fi radio so they can emit the fact that they exist. But now you know, the people who have to sustain the force will rightly point out, well, look at all those batteries you're going to have to also develop and power. And those are additional signals that we have to worry about. Surely there's a more efficient, effective way. And I think in today's day and age, there's probably some enterprising sergeant or corporal or lieutenant who can go out and write a computer vision program. So all they have to do is get a ladder, climb up on the top of the motor pool and take a picture of all that equipment laid out and have a computer vision algorithm tell them which piece of equipment is missing. And in reality, you won't have to climb the ladder and take the picture because as soon as the sergeant sees the lieutenant is gonna climb on top of the motor pool, he's just gonna tell you the piece of equipment that's missing on truck four, as opposed to the amount of paperwork that might be involved if the lieutenant falls off the ladder. So you got to find some kind of problem where the status quo is really a waste of time and resources, and you're trying to get to the effect. We've been talking about effects-based operations in the department for a long time. So the effect is, you know, I need to have the inventory of all the equipment. I need to know that the equipment is there and it's serviceable. I don't have to do the same method of how we've always done it. And you, you have to have a collection of those kinds of pilot activities across enough of the organization so that people see that there is an opportunity to reimagine how the work gets done. There's support for that reimagining process and then the resources that come with it. And the benefit of the Department of Defense is it has tremendous resources in research development, test evaluation, exercises, procurement, 
you have all of these places where you can go try things in a training exercise, you know, or try them with your OTA authorities and not have to worry about life or limb and the worst case scenarios in, in that kind of trial and error process. I couldn't agree with you more in terms of honing in on uh, end user or user uh, mm -hmm. in general, uh, people in that user community that you're trying to affect problems and how you can create and how do you make their lives better? What's their pain points? We talked a lot about this with Rob because I think that's how he focused a lot of his work as the lessons learned officer. And then, so we're, from your, based on your experience, so who do you engage with next? Let's say you have I won't say buy-in, but let's say you have some kind of alliance, right? Or you have some stakeholder engagement with your user community. Like where do you, where would you go next in terms of like that, right? The litany of stakeholders that we have to get buy-in from. So I, I think you have to take the time to go around and uh, meet those people in advance. So I had this experience at AWS, you know, the Department of Defense, put some requirements on the cloud service providers, you know, for things like tactical edge and parity, et cetera. Um, and I was in this new product management role, you know, interfacing with all the service teams that have to build the cloud services and deploy them. And, you know, the pace of business kept me from really getting around and introducing myself to them back in the beginning. And so I'm showing up on their doorstep with a problem, needing them to change their priority, you know, needing them to uh, go in a direction that wasn't planned for the year. So I think anytime you get to your new assignment or anytime you're getting a new project, you really need to pause and do a very thorough stakeholder analysis and go back through those kinds of dimensions, you know, requirements, enabling systems, data, security. You need to understand who those stakeholders are and then get to them and get to know them before you're bringing them a problem. Because if you can get any kind of rapport developed with them, if you can understand their capabilities and limitations and priorities and resources, you can start to have an effective negotiation with them. And then you can also advocate on their behalf. So that was one of the, the things that I was really doing in, in several different projects was being the person who is going and asking for the resources to be given to another team so that they could get the effect achieved that I was trying to achieve. And you develop much more, you know, rapport and trust when you understand the challenges and resources that they're trying to balance and you try to make that a positive outcome for them. And sometimes that means you have to write the business case. You know, you have to go brief their chain of command. You have to go brief their customers on how we're going to blend their requirements or their solution together with these new requirements or these these alternative solutions, which is a lot of work, but it's fun yeah. uh, when you get it done yeah. in the end. Yeah, uh, it, it is a lot of work. I know exactly what you're talking about. I would also offer what you're describing in terms of creating a more relational way of, you know, doing business with your stakeholders is it probably feels less transactional, you know, because a, a number, I guess it, it just makes it easier to say, if you can give them a reason or an, a better reason to say yes, or make it easier for them to say yes, because they know you're known, right? Like they have eyes on you, or they they understand your part in the, the workflow or the process that 
I think that just always helps. I think that's what you're trying to say. Absolutely. And, you know, you need to leave with very little chop in your wake, you know, because you're probably going to be back again and need their assistance. So you can't just burn every bridge, you know, every time you're doing something. And they have their own experience. They have resources you're unaware of. They have insights and they have capabilities that can probably achieve your effect better than you even imagined if you take the time to co-create with them as opposed to just saying, this is the way it's going to be and I just need you to do you know, this thing the way I'm asking. Yeah, that's a really good point because it, it puts maybe your assumptions, or maybe even your ego aside, which is very difficult also. It's easy to say that, not easy to do, and makes you more vulnerable and open to someone like understanding someone else's contributions to the effect to your point. I like how you phrase that. And in the process, you really get to test each other's assumptions, especially the assumptions about the future and the use cases that they anticipated. So for, and, and by really pressure testing the solution that they're talking about in the spirit of AI or whatever the technology is you're working on, you may be able to uh, move them. And so I think the department also needs to have a set of events that motivate people to move. And the, the example I was thinking of is you've got the National Training Center in the Army. They've got the 11th Armored Cavalry Regiment as the opposition force. And by looking at their website, they have two squadrons. Well, what if in some future deployment to the National Training Center, you show up and they have two system two squadrons of humans and then 18 more kind of system three autonomous squadrons attacking you. And so now you're facing 20 to one forces, you know, that going through that kind of car crash in training is much better than ending up losing your first battle, because that's the kind of, you know, true near peer competitor we could be facing in the future. And if you go to the National Training Center and every brigade or every battalion or every, you know, division fails deployment after deployment against a 20, you know, 20 to one odds, then maybe we start reimagining the art of war. What do you think are some of the challenges to doing what you just said? Well, I think right now for in the case of artificial intelligence and autonomy, they are still buzzwords. They're they're theoretical capabilities to theoretical problems. And so I think we have to go back to the the very tangible examples so that each person experiences the future and then can start reimagining their work. And there are some very simple kind of safe examples that we can start with that people have already adopted. So for example, my car um, gives me uh, three, it's got three different algorithms that I rely upon. You know, I get a visual and audible indicator when I'm trying to change lanes and someone's in my blind spot. I get a similar set of indicators when I'm closing too quickly with an item in front of me. And in some cases, the car will even stop if it believes, you know, or brake if it believes a collision is probable. It also has an algorithm that I don't like. Sometimes I like to slowly drive up to my driveway, open the door, reach out and grab the newspaper on my way up. And my car promptly throws itself into park or stop when I do that, which is not helpful. Our phones similarly have these very helpful little algorithms where when you go to create a new contact in your contacts database, in the background, it's parsing the text or email you had with that person, and it's auto-proposing the phone number or email address that goes with that name. 
Now, perhaps the greatest AI system uh, three example we can think of today where life and limb are involved is the automated external defibrillator. We're trusting a machine to detect heart rhythms, to uh, decide that there's ventricle fibrillation going on, and then apply a set of voltage for specific durations to restore a normal rhythm. So if everybody goes to the gym, they're depending upon this artificial intelligence called an AED, you know, recovering them if they have uh, a, heart, a heart attack in the middle of their workout. And those are the, the kinds of things that are possible. We just need to imagine them for the department as well and be prepared for the fact that this is not going away. Uh, and it's not going away because um, we continue to lower the cost of GPUs and TPUs, which means the math problems can get bigger. And we're transitioning from a world where you did statistical analysis on samples aperiodically to being able to, in near real time, uh, work with models that are solving problems on data that approximates the entire population of the problem. And that's not going to go away. So I think the last part of your comment there is the big point in terms of having vision. I know in my office, this is something we are working in, uh, immensely behind in terms of what is the vision of AI in the Department of Defense. Right now, people's visions are probably more, I don't even know if I'd call it a vision, but like when I work with clients and whatnot about like on projects, it's more about like applied AI less and less about vision, if that makes sense. And um, so I, I wanted to kind of foot stomp that real quick because it's, I, I think that shouldn't be understated, I guess I want to say. I agree with you. And in some ways, your problem is kind of like the space race. So AlphaGo and ChatGPT are our Sputnik moments for this generation. And if you think about what President Kennedy had to do after that, he declared a very uh, singular vision of we will put a man on the moon. And over the next 12 years, the government spent in current dollars the equivalent of $22 billion per year to accomplish that goal. And multiple rockets, you know, blew up on the launch pad before we made it to yeah. the moon. And, you know, we've seen the movies and understand it. But in this case, I think it's more like the Precambrian explosion where now you have pretty much any actor in the world has access to this compute, has access to lots of data, who can quickly write software, you know, can use R or, you know, Python to start building models. And your challenge is going to be having kind of multiple visions for each department, each agency, hopefully working together in concert on something so that you can stitch together your kind of virtual journey to the moon. We're not going to the moon this time, but we are going to change the art of war in this way, or we're going to change operationally responsive space in this way, or we're going to change how we do logistics in this way. And, um, you know, in that, in that effort, you're going to have to basically go from motivation with no synchronization to a little bit of synchronization across a lot of motivation happening by a lot of of uh, great Americans and a lot of very powerful bureaucracies. And we have to remember that bureaucracies are also a force of good, right? They secure civil liberties, they provide oversight, they provide stewardship, they provide careers, they provide development to people. 
And so really understanding what they're good at and giving them the opportunity to show how good they are at that is how you get, you know, the, the sum of the parts to be more than more than. Yeah, I like that. So let's, let's round it out with, since we're talking about future and vision and, you know, where this is probably going. So where do you think AI is going to land in our lifetime? Like how far do you think it's going to go? So again, if we kind of go back to some of the capabilities people are working on, you know, you've got classification. So the ability for Gmail to decide is this message spam or not spam. There's lots of ways we can use that kind of basic logistic regression of classifying things. We're seeing what's happening with natural language processing, you know, from Siri and Alexa to the latest large language models. I think where we maybe have not done as much work is kind of the deterministic, non-deterministic reasoning of given all of these facts, should we go left or should we go right, either with policy or with uh, material and personnel? Um, and, and how close do we get to autonomy in that kind of a sense? And how much you know, computer vision do you need to enable the, the blending of what we know in text you know, with what we know from sensors, with what we know uh, from that, which we can sense around us immediately? Um, I think, again, each of them will go kind of faster or slower uh, based on how well organized people can get to do something in that area or how quickly an emergency shows up in that space. Uh, if you go again back to the history of American warfare, we always end up losing the first battle. And then what we're really good at is changing at certain point in time and flowing resources to the solution that works better. But unfortunately, it still persists today. Um, you know, I think the, the first battle in US forces going into Afghanistan was really a command and control failure. You have basically the national command leadership all the way up to the national security staff deciding if 10th Mountain Division can take artillery with them or not. And, <laughs> and so that's like how much our C3, C5 you know, resources have enabled the highest level commanders to put their thumb or their, you know, her thumb on the tactical table of equipment is something that we have to guard against as we do AI and mass, you know, take advantage of all this data. You still have to have discretion and agency at each of the levels where people are closest to the fight. And then of Ooh. course, in Iraq, unfortunately, you know, we, we did not anticipate the fact that IEDs would be the major weapon system that we would confront. You know, it was not in JSIDs. We did not have programs of record. And right. thankfully we had eventually really large checkbooks and you know the military industrial complex able to turn quickly and start building better ways to detect, better ways to track and, and uh, better ways to defend and better ways to you know, recover injured personnel. So I'm yeah. not sure if artificial intelligence is gonna change the first battles problem, but it'd be much better to do it at the National Training Center than to do it in the next country. Mm. I liked what you said that we needed, we need discretion and agency to the people closest to the problems. I can wholeheartedly relate to that, just even in my functional lane of contracting. Mm -hmm. And then I loved a lot of what you just said in general. So 
I just want to give you a big thank you for letting me pick your brain and for, you know, giving me some insight into like your, your experience and how it carries over into the department as well. Appreciate you talking about that today. Thank you so much, John, for joining us today. I learned a lot from your presentation and I wanted to thank Bonnie again for keeping that conversation going and giving us all the information we needed out of today's episode. We hope to see everyone again in the next episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow Into Today. Bye everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of AI Proficiency Turning Tomorrow Into Today. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe, and share this podcast within your network. These actions move mountains for our mission of sharing artificial intelligence knowledge. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on our next episode of AI Proficiency, Turning Tomorrow Into Today.